Welcome to Hadar's Web, a podcast featuring community conversations on spirituality, healing, justice, and art. My name is Hadar Cohen. I am your host, and I am delighted to invite you to my relational web. Today's guest is Emmet Izel. Emmet is a community organizer, a public song leader, and a poet. They are the author of the chapbook Between Every Bird Are Bones, which won the 2021 Gloria Anzaldúa Poetry Prize. Emmet lives rooted in diaspora, making home between Berlin and the American South. When they reincarnate, Emmet hopes to become a bird. Thank you so much, Emmet, for being here with me. Oh my God, I'm so excited, Hadar. So you are actually my first guest on Hadar's web podcast. And I like to start my podcast with asking people, how do you know me? How are you involved in the web of Hadar? Hmm. First of all, I'm very uh, happy to be a part of the web. Critical. (laughs) Um, We met in Jerusalem. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Sometimes my memory wanes but so we might have to do this part together um but I'm remembering maybe I met you at a party or there was some event in which someone pulled me over to you and said this is Hadar you have to meet Hadar um and from there the rest was just boom yeah I actually remember also someone connected us and I remember very distinctly because I was living at my grandma's place who recently passed and there was this one night where we met up and you came over and we went to yeah some party together um and that's when we really I felt like had our first conversation and like dropped in Mm. and we were like whoa we're in this moment together of so much so much was happening around us and we were both on our own personal journeys of contending with Mm. identity belonging spirituality Spirituality. (laughs) (laughs) I think I what I remember is dropping in, uh, there was a drop mm. energetically, like we both sat down and then I felt a sense of relief, like, oh, someone else speaks this language of invisible things. Mm. Ooh, the language of invisible things. I love that. And yeah, um, I would like to just invite you to share a little bit more of what you mean by that, because I think for me, a lot of times when I think about spirit, I think how spirit communicates through the unseen Mm. or sometimes through signs. Mm. And yeah, I'm curious to know how you see that language of the invisible. Mm. Mm. I can't, I can't talk about the invisible or talk about God without talking about evangelical Christianity, um, which was how I was raised. Uh, in the deep American South and um, that worldview, that way of being uh, did a lot of damage to me. But at the same time, uh, it really gave me a sense from the moment I was born that the most important thing was God. 
that God was in the world and the world was in God, like God before anything else. Um, a frequent refrain of my childhood. I like hear my mother saying, you can't see him, but he's always there. Mm. Um, and I think that has shifted and my understanding of what God being visible or invisible means has so much to me to do with listening. Um, Mm. And listening with senses beyond just the ears. Mm. Um, Gloria Anzaldúa has taught me a lot about invisible things, and and she uses the language of like spirit image. What can you see? Um, working with spirits, with ghosts, with um, the people who aren't here, who we can't see, but who at the same time I feel like I can see. Mm. Um, a lot of listening to my intuition or feeling like I have a sense of something that needs to happen or there's a message. Um, and it's when I try to put it into the realm of language that there's uh, difficulty or it needs more attention. Right. And something that I think about sometimes is that we sometimes as a society are kind of forcing what is invisible to become visible so that we mm. can admit that it's true. Because in some ways, we're not really so comfortable with the invisible. We're not comfortable with it just being invisible. We need to and somehow make it visible. Um, mm. But, you know, one of the things that I, I liked about what you said, and, you know, I, I resonate because it's like sometimes when you grow up in a more conservative religious home, which I in some ways did too, you do grow up with a sense of a really deep understanding of God. And even if there's some distortions on some level, there's like an embodied sense. Totally. And the evangelicalism with which I was raised was super embodied. Hands up in the air for prayer, um, very devotional. And at the same time, there was this huge split Mm. between the spirit and the body, that the body was uh, a dangerous, sinful, hypersexual thing. And um, I think... As I try to undo the distortions, yeah. figuring out how to how spirit and body speak, mm. um, that there isn't a split there. There doesn't have to be. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about yeah your life path of mm. how you know from from the environment that you in the household that you grew up with. I know you have quite a journey, quite a story <laughs> to share. Um, And yeah, just curious to hear, I mean, especially through this lens of wrestling with God and the embodiment of God and who spirit is, right? Which is like, in some ways, such a profound, philosophical, prophetic inquiry. Mm. Um, And in some ways, I think that is how I experience both my life and your life Mm. life, around this, like trying to follow this inquiry of like, who is God really? Um, Well, first of all, there are many spirits and there are many gods that feels important for me to say um i was raised evangelical so god was three in one there was the father the son the holy ghost there was jesus jesus everywhere and um when i was in my early 20s i was living with my grandmother in texas and she and i were going through her closet um pulling down old things, organizing. And I found this photo of a bunch of old people 
in black and white, wearing like long robes and they had curls coming out of their head. And I said to her, what the heck is this? Um, what, what is, who are these people? And she looked at me and she said, they're Jews. That's us. Uh, those are your family members. You're a Jew. And to this day, she doesn't even remember that conversation. It was so, yeah, of course, you know, whatever. Uh, but to me, it was earth shattering. I had no idea. Um, my mother had gotten a nose job, dyed her hair blonde, really committed to assimilating into whiteness and to figure out, whoa, surprise, everything you learned, everything you were told about the world is actually a lie. Um, the Messiah had come suddenly the Messiah had not come. And that spiritual transition was so intense for me. Um, I'm in many ways, I'm still trying to hold those pieces that don't resolve that spirit doesn't actually resolve. Um, Mm -hmm. doesn't have to. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So as a body and being that was so committed to God, this was such a betrayal. I think I couldn't comprehend a God that would allow me to live 21 years of my life in a lie. Mm. Um, and so there was a real yearning to figure out how do you find the truth after you've lost everything? When, how do you learn what you are? What is knowing? Um, what are the technologies I need to, to learn what's true? Because everything I've had up till now is fake news. And so I think that inquiry, that question, that longing, I've had to follow. And it's taken me uh, to multiple places I never planned on going from Palestine to Berlin. Um, And there is something very special about experiencing God's betrayal and staying for what comes after. Mm. Wow. I love that. And resonate because I feel like I've experienced multiple betrayals. <laughs> betrayals. Well, that's, uh, yeah, God doesn't just betray you once, <laughs> unfortunately. Yeah. And in some ways, that's actually a very Jewish right. question. You know, how do we relate to a God who has abandoned us, right? Or, right. or right. Um, in some ways, deceived us, right? Like this deception and through spirituality. Mm. Or, or I guess phrased in another way, it's like there's something about these moments of rupture, of breaking that actually enable a certain spirituality that is not possible when things are put together. Well, and and God falling apart is very similar to the world falling apart. Like Mm. I was also raised with lies around um, who was valuable, what my gender was, what I am, what the world is. And in a sense, um, the betrayal of God and the betrayal of the world and the betrayal of my family we're all happening like a waterfall. Yeah, the multiplicity. Yeah, yeah. And oh, they're finding like joy and love after that betrayal, finding a way to breathe and trust that there was something true that would find me. Um, and I feel like so much of that work has also been in community, mm. like people showing up, um, while I found my way. Yeah. 
And I think that's so much of what we as humans can do for each other is showing up when we're undone, mm-hmm. you know, when mm-hmm. we're still in process. <laughs> yes. Because we never actually complete. We're always in some sort of evolution. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And um, so much of what shifted when I left Christianity, when I was in Christian la-la land, as I like to call it, I was translating the Septuagint. I was leading Bible studies. I was converting people. I had a lot of power and I had a lot of wisdom. And suddenly when I entered Jewish spaces, I knew nothing. Mm. I didn't even know that the books were read the other way. I didn't know where to start. I showed up on time to the service instead of an hour late. (laughs) Um, I, uh, not knowing uh, that there could be a belonging that wasn't based on knowledge. Mm was so healing and so provocative. I was so enraged um, that my mother's decision had meant I knew nothing. Mm. And learning from that place was very humbling. Yeah. How do you pray when you can't speak the language? How do you learn? Um, How can I be present and participate and belong without having to know. Wow. Yeah. And in some ways, you know, I think that is also related to the social conditioning, right? That it's like, oh, the more you know, the more educated you are. But actually, maybe it's the opposite. Maybe Mm -hmm. the less you know, the more receptive you are to spirit's messages. And... Mm. And, you know, and, and it's, it's, it's tricky because it's kind of this multidimensional thing because on the one hand, it's like there's that grief of loss and of memory. And, you know, I, I, like hearing your story, it makes me think because there's so many stories like this. I mean, especially of Jewish people like hiding or assimilating totally. or trying to pretend like they weren't Jewish. And then all of a sudden, it's kind of like a, in Hebrew, we say like a makkah. Like you, know, <laughs> you wake up and you're like, wait, like, boom. This is my lineage, but I was thinking of it as being outside of me, and now I have to contend with this whole. So, what was that like? And I mean, I don't know if you recall the emotional experience. I imagine it was like quite shocking, but was there also some like excitement of discovery there, or it was just like utter shock? So, for context, I was in the middle of Texas. I'd never met a Jew in my life, except for my grandmother, who I didn't know was Jewish. Yeah, you know, like yeah. I had no idea of what my what I was inheriting, um, what I was belonging to. So I just felt devastation. Honestly, my first thought was, oh shit, I'm go, I'm like actually going to hell now. Uh, it's really coming for me. Right. Like I was hard. really, I was really raised with a lot of anti-Semitism, mm-hmm. um, which I didn't even have a word for. Again, the things you have to undo yeah. and unlearn. But, uh, I called the only Jew I knew, who was my roommate from rehab, um, Shana. And I said, Shanala, I found out I'm Jewish. What do I do? And she said, of course you're Jewish, (laughs) Ahmed. Listen, I'm doing this program called Adama at Isabella Friedman Jewish Retreat Center. You should come visit. And I thought, what the heck is a Jewish retreat center? what is this? Um, but she was the only cardinal direction I had. And so I thought, okay, maybe I'll go and, um, had a doctor's appointment 
which escalated quickly into a bunch of mammograms and biopsies and got diagnosed with a bunch of tumors, which was like, oh shit, I'm going to die. I need to figure out how to be Jewish. So I flew to see Shana at this retreat center and suddenly I was in a room and everyone had curly hair and I'd never been in a room full of Jews before. I'd never even like seen what we looked like. Um, I remember crying so much. Suddenly I wasn't surrounded. It was, it was so intense. It was so embodied. I felt so overwhelmed physically. Um, and everything clicked. It was like, Oh, um, well, maybe I'm nothing. I told I'm not what I was told I was. So then what am I? And Isabella Friedman is a very special place. And, uh, the first davening, the first prayer service I ever saw was led by trans Jews. Mm. And there was something in me that said, Oh, that's, that makes sense. That's what I am. Um, and in this moment, my Jewishness and my queerness and my gender nonconformity all clicked. It was like, Oh, suddenly there's room for me to be what I am. Uh, and I think that was when I felt hope, but I didn't really feel it in Texas. It was like, yeah. uh, shit. <laughs> but I think in some ways it's such a, it's so relatable because all of us in our own ways, it's like we grow up with such different conditioning and there's totally. a moment where it all collapses. Yes. And then we have choices, right? Either we uphold the conditioning because we're too scared to confront what we don't know or what, what might be truer to us, right? Mm. And then we kind of just become addicted to the conditioning in some ways, or we really let things break and then we grow and develop from there. Um, so, you know, I think it's really beautiful every time I hear your story. I'm like, that took a lot of courage to mm. embrace. And, you know, I'm sure it wasn't an easy process in any way. And, yeah, obviously it's ongoing. But um, that choice to, to really let things fall apart. It felt like not a choice. It felt like surrender, which I think is the muscle I had from evangelical Christianity. That is a realm of surrender. Somebody else is telling you who you are, what to do, how to be. You, the, the spiritual muscle I had strengthened mm. was surrender. Mm-hmm. And so there was something about laying down and letting it all fall that felt very um, natural. Yeah, It was actually learning how to make a choice, mm. how to act, yeah. how to... Uh, be in my body differently, how to have a sense of agency that, that has been the hardest. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, uh, yeah, surrender. I mean, that's one of the biggest spiritual practices, but it's also fascinating is that, you know, so many religions in different ways try to uphold like a sense of coherency, a sense of control of like, this is who God is and this is what God looks like and this is how God, what God says is okay. And, you know, trying to in some ways paint a perfect image of, of what it means to be religious. Mm. But what I've found through my life is that um, you don't know who God is. <laughs> like you really don't. You think no. you know and then it's like you don't. Oh yeah. And and one of the things that I 
um, have come to is that God actually speaks through life, right? Through, through how, through life itself, through the evolution of being and becoming and, and from when you fall apart and then you regather yourself and, and, mm. and finding God in that process, that is a very much a process of surrender, right? Cause it's like, it's, it's, you couldn't have dreamt it or imagined it, right? <laughs> I'm so interested that you said God is in the alive things because I would have said, no, no, God is in the dead things. Ah. I think, um, and thankfully there are many gods. Um, But for me, I feel like once something has died, um, then it needs burial. Mm. Then it needs attention. Then it needs care. Um, Then it needs... uh, I feel like it, it starts talking in a different way. Um, and, and I think this has a lot to do for me with my poetry. Like, yeah, I was just going to say with, you have an upcoming poetry book. Oh God, don't remind me. (laughs) Um, yeah, I feel like that book emerged from listening to the dead and believing that they had something to say to me. Mm. Um, which goes back to the invisible. Oh yeah. Who doesn't have a voice and what's not said and what's not seen. And how do we listen to that? And uh, just that there are more ways of knowing than we're told. Yeah. Oof. That's a deep one. (laughs) Yeah, that I could sit in the morning at 4 a.m. in the stillness. And that that stillness uh, has something to say. Mm -hmm. That there's something there. Mm -hmm. And to me, writing is so auditory. Uh, it's very material. I'm writing by hand and I'm reading it out loud, tapping my chest, my sternum, while I hear the words land, feeling them land, listening for the song, the rhythm. Uh, There was one time we were in a car in Jerusalem and we were talking about language as a material force. Oh, uh, I think I had just handed you a like goat yogurt smoothie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, and we were talking about language as material, as mm. a container, as especially in Hebrew. Yeah. Um, and I think this is also true of Arabic that um, you're opening up a spiritual, magical dimension with language. We're not just exchanging ideas. We're exchanging breath and materiality. And cosmic power. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) And I think the only people in the game of exchange aren't alive people. I think the dead are very involved in that exchange. You know, it's so interesting that you're saying that because this is something that it's quite still undeveloped in my mind, but something I've been thinking about for some time is that, um, you know, all these worlds that both of us work through around spirituality and healing and justice, sometimes these worlds are very far apart from each other. Oh, God. Yeah, 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 yeah. But obviously, we really need them to be closer <laughs> because there's something in that. But one of the things that I've found recently in the last couple of months, you know, I've been in the healing world for a long time. um, And there's a way in which the healing world kind of refuses to speak the political language because it finds it as a threat or something. Mm. Like there's something about speaking about race or gender that's like threatening. Or class. Or class or, or any of these systems. 
And, and what I found in my body, this is quite recently, so it's still fresh, is that I actually found that a lot of the, liber- the somatic liberation that happens in my body is when there's a precise articulation of political thought. Yes. And it, it was kind of a quite like interesting experience for me because especially, you know, living in California in the somatic healing communities for so long, it's like there's so much effort and energy of like going back to the body, go to the body, go to the body. And it's like, okay, we're in the body. <laughs> but, now what? <laughs> yeah. But sometimes you really like that, that power, I think, of what you're saying of like the linguistic of the articulation of, of creating the frame of creating um, that power you know, there's something so liberating because sometimes you can just get so drowned and so mm. confused and so disoriented mm-hmm. and, and you need something that can help orient you. Right. Which in some ways, you know, I think your work does a lot with poetry. I need something to hold on to. Um, I think language helps us lasso the things that we know are true and pass them to the person next to us. Yeah. There are so many things... Uh, I hold on to that Audre Lorde said, that Gloria Anzaldúa said, that Aurora Levens Morales said, that I heard you say last week, um, that I heard on Johnny Nicholas's astrology app. Like, I am holding on to words like life rafts. Mm-hmm. And I think working with words is tricky because this is also the realm of propaganda. Yes. And so we can't be talking about language and its impact and how we need language both in the spiritual realm and the political realm without also talking about the harm these things do Mm -hmm. and the way they're being manipulated by the state uh, by the government to hide what's true yes and so this is to me why the body matters because if i'm hearing a word and i a a word reading something what is my reaction in my body? Mm. What if my body is a litmus source of truth? Mm. And it's not what I'm reading on the page. There's another dimension. Um, and this, to me, is also where song mm. comes in. Um, there's a lot of propaganda song. There's a lot of ways in which lies move through music. Mm. But there is also ways in which connection and healing move through music. Yeah. Um, and for me, I'm like, okay, words, an impure thing. Song, an impure thing. But why would that keep me from playing? Mm-mm. Yeah, and, and, and what does it take to develop the facility to discern between propaganda and the truth? Which I'm curious about your experience landing in Jerusalem Hmm. after going through all the journey that you went through, um, you know, from Texas to Jerusalem (laughs) and and like, you know, coming into your connection to Jewishness, coming into discovering Jewish community and then following that all the way through to Jerusalem, like wait, and then waking up in Jerusalem and seeing like, Oh, what is happening here? Oh, These are great questions. You're mm -hmm. great questions. Um, The minute I said I was going to Jerusalem, I suddenly found myself the like on the receiving end of everyone's projections. Mm. Um, My mom said to me on a call, 
do you know how much Hamas gets paid every time a Jew dies? It was like, okay, whoa. <laughs> like, honey, I know you heard that on talk radio, but I don't need it. Like, right. and um, a lot of questions of why are you going to Jerusalem? What's that about? And for me at the time, I thought I was going to Jerusalem to really lean into movement building mm -hmm. at an international scale, which I was, I was, um, But God had another plan. God was like, yeah, you're also coming here to learn how to love and to learn how to tell the difference between truth and lies and to meet half your family in Meishalim. Surprise, your family in Jerusalem, right? Like, yeah. again, <laughs> what do I know of God? But I found in my, my body over and over again a sense of discomfort in certain mm -hmm. spaces or... Um, I would just notice a reaction, like I'd get chills or I'd start sweating or feel like I needed to leave or I'd be really angry. And um, I think in Jerusalem, I couldn't keep it all in my body. Like I had yeah. to keep almost like flushing my body. And part of the way I figured out what was true and not true also had to do with political community. Um, people who were seeing the same violence and military occupation I was uh, and weren't trying to erase it. Mm. I think in regards to language and what's being expressed or told, I'm really interested in what people don't want to say. Like, where's the discomfort? Yeah. And I actually, I don't know if you remember this. You must remember this because this was one of our best conversations. <laughs> <laughs> When we were one time... Um, talking about the military-industrial complex and how that is so mm. related to the spiritual-industrial complex and yes. patriarchy and the, yes. and the violence of gender and, um, yeah, the ways in which they're bound up and especially, you know, under Judaism, the ways in which the state of Israel teaches Judaism is through this militarized religion that is actually very connected to this patriarchal way that, that that they both kind of sustain each other right as if the bible is a text of building the nation state if that's the reason the torah exists uh and to disentangle that is no small thing and you know my life has fallen apart i've lost everything many times i think it comes back to me of how can i belong without needing to know and also How do I know what I know? Mm -hmm. um, knowing what I know involves calling the shit the shit. Yeah. Um, calling the occupation the occupation. Calling a gun a gun. And also asking questions of how did we get here? Yeah. Why, why are we here? Yeah. Who Which else is... is yeah, question. it's a depressing question. But I think leads me to uh, the people who are trying to get somewhere else. Right. And, and this is something that you were mentioning before in a different conversation we had around <laughs> the need for like an embodied Jewishness. Mm. And in some ways, perhaps that actually resolves this question of how did we get to a place where Judaism is so bound up in the military industrial complex and in patriarchy and patriarchal violence, because It, 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 and this is something that I feel like I see more and more, which is a question that I'm personally interested in. It's like, how do we shift political discourse into this body landscape? 
and 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 why is it or what happens when conversations kind of get trapped in the intellect yeah right because usually if, if a conversation is trapped in the intellect it's pointing to an immense amount of trauma in the body that hasn't been resolved and that trauma is actually what's perpetuating more trauma mm-hmm. so it's like we can't really mm-hmm. engage on this intellectual discourse on it right because it's covering this whole other dimension I think so much for me, Jewish writing, writing in a Jewish body, uh, writing as a Jewish person, my question is, what embodiment exists that's not entitlement Mm. and not self-hatred? What's the other option? Why have these become the two options? And I think it has to do with this military-industrial complex with um, I'm entitled, the, the world is for me, uh, everything belongs to me, or I hate myself. And there's got to be another embodiment. <laughs> Please, dear God. <laughs> right, right. And in some ways, it's like, um, to me, what I hear and you're, you're saying, it's like that fragmented experience of not feeling belonging. So it's either like, I'm the victim and everyone hates me, or I'm the chosen people and I deserve everything. <laughs> yes, yes. And I, I think... Uh, Neither of those are are working for us right now. That's just true. We can look and say, how are these embodiments, how are these narratives playing out? Poorly. And poorly. poorly. And at the same time, um, the shift is slow and it's quick. Yeah. Um, I think when we see the way, a different way out of no way, it's, Mm. I mean, that to me was what finding out I'm Jewish was, was suddenly a way emerging out of no way. Yeah. And an embodiment, an opportunity to live into something else. And queerness is this, transness is this for me, is um, we can actually choose to be otherwise. Mm-hmm. I can actually choose this thing that I am over and over again and undo the social conditioning and not commit to that but commit to the, the unknown thing. Yeah, which in your poetry book, you were talking about how, how do you go back to a place where you mm. can't go back to? Yeah, the question I feel like of this book is, is how do you care mm. for a place you're no longer allowed back? Yeah. Which to me is a very Jewish question, a very queer question, a very Palestinian question, a, a question of, um, and also to me, the fact that it's a question of care, right? Mm-hmm. Like maybe the goal isn't for me to return to the land in Latvia where my family was kicked out, but how do I care for that place? How do I tend to it within me? Yeah. How do I care for those dead right. and, and grief and loss and, um, so much also about climate right now is about places we can't go back to. Yeah. Things that burn. And so how do we care for that uh, and not obsess yeah. um, with the places we can't go back to? And, and also try to fix everything. You know, this is something we were talking about, about grief, about how, you know, part of why grief is so intense is because you actually can't have what you lost back. Right? It's like... 
I think you use this example of like, okay, like your couch is destroyed. <laughs> Even if someone gets you a new couch, like, I mean, obviously a couch is a metaphor, I was like, but... I was like, your couch is, it, it, you lost the couch, but actually someone just burned down your whole house. Right. And like, if you get a new couch, it doesn't, it doesn't restore the problem. Right, right, right. And in some ways there is no restoration because there's no way to get what was lost. And, and that's, you know, the, the, the sitting with that amount of just loss, you know, I think that's something that is very hard for us as humans because we, we have these experiences that then we, we try to fix and we try to get back what was and we, we kind of, you know, try to build up also this nostalgia and this romanticization mm-hmm. as opposed to just being like, what does this, what can this grief make possible? Well, and to me, history is so critical about this, right? Like the 1920s, the 1930s, so many population transfers, so much, like the world was moving into this nationalist frame um, and solidifying what is Germany, what is France, what is Spain, what what are these places and what kind of people live there? Um, and so to me, I understand my own family's loss in this larger story of... Yeah. Uh, obsession with the nation state, purity culture, and the willingness to destroy human lives, communities, in order to win that goal. Yeah. Oof. And that's a grief that I hold as a Jewish body in a particular way, but that I know Jews are not the only bodies holding that. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah. And to me, I find relief. Like, thank God we can share this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and this shared humanity space, because this is a human crisis, actually. Nation states are a human crisis. Yes. <laughs> I would agree. You know? yeah. Yeah. And, and sometimes we fall into this place of just thinking that this is how the world always has been and was. But it's actually a fairly new phenomenon in history. Well, again, history as illuminating. Uh, Palestine used to be a place in which... Uh, grave sites were shared by Jews, by Palestinians, by Christians. There was a lot of shared placefulness. Yeah. And right now we're in a moment in which such a thing is impossible yeah. to imagine. Yeah. Go look at the 1700s. It's popping. <laughs> and okay, how do I care for that? I can't go back to it. What is the future? What is the now? Mm. What is my body that's not just my body? What do my ancestors from yay 1700s have to say? Yeah. Can I reach them? What practices do I need in my life in order to reach them? Mm. I love that. So that I can reach them forward. Yeah. It's funny how it's like when we go to the past, we actually also go to the future. It's like a... Both and. Both and. So you can't to... just go to one, unfortunately. Right. And this is actually something that, you know, in my teaching around Arab Jewish experience, we were unpacking around how this claiming this Arab Jewish identity, it's like in some ways, sometimes that conversation can get caught up in the past of like, oh, we were Arab Jews and this is how we lived and this is how, but it's actually also a future conversation around like, mm-hmm. what does that mean for Arab Jews to belong as Arab Jews, right? Like it's, it's actually a more prophetic mm. identity than a past identity. And I think that some, there's something really interesting there because it's like, it's actually claiming that Arabs 
are part right like that that this whole like Arabs versus Jews is obviously a myth but but and which goes to speaks to what you're saying about the 1700s and all the fluidity right, that existed right. between communities between religions between people um and that now we're living in a very i mean both physically but also mentally and just totally. high level segregation right and rigidity and um I have this photo of my grandmother's family, which I've showed you. And my great-grandparents are sitting there. My great-grandfather is wearing a kaftan. Uh, they're in Odessa. Yeah. And then the generation standing behind him is all in suits. Right? Like, oh, there's a break there. There's a shift here. Something happened. And I think about the way in which you're called to claim Arab Jewishness is also a call to recognize all of the ways in which Arabs and Jews have always already been exchanging ways of being together. Yeah. And what does it mean uh, for that to also be the case going forward? Mm -hmm. What futures open? What becomes possible? And you know, it's so radical because it's like your story, my story, in some ways all of our stories, right? It's like when we come back to this identity and the body knowing it's like it's even as simple as just doing that and already the the philosophy or the ideology of the nation state begins to crumble. Right, because because you're not you're taking the knowledge source back to the body instead yeah. of giving the authority to the state. Ex- extracting it. Right, and, like yeah. we don't ask the state who am I. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> you know the state would tell us a bunch of bullshit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally. And I think this is where the political piece really becomes necessary, right? Mm. Because who am I is also formed by social conditions of power. Yeah. Um, we cannot abandon reality and move into spiritual prophetic land if we're not really? naming what did happen to our bodies. Why? Yeah. Where is racism? Where is class? What is happening? Yeah. We, we can't leave that in, this, in the question of who am I? We can't also get stuck in the pieces of, well, I'm a queer trans Jew from Texas. Like, <laughs> we need, a, we need yeah. movement in both directions. I yeah. think this goes back to what you were saying of how do we get the spiritual and the political to talk? Mm-hmm. Definitely, we need that. And, you know, I, just as you were speaking, I was hearing this question of who am I is mm. such a vulnerable question. And part of the reason why I feel like there's so much state propaganda is because we're so vulnerable with that question. It's like, and, and because of all the loss and all the confusion and the human desire to belong. I mean, that's, I think we all have. We want to belong. We want to belong to each other. We want to belong to the land. We want to belong to God. Like the, the desire to belong is so, so strong. And when you're in such a vulnerable place of loss and confusion and you don't know it, it you know, and, and obviously the state takes advantage of that. That's how the state operates, mm-hmm. that they weaponize people's pain and their traumas and they seep in in, in a very cruel way, you know? Right. Um, so, and this is part of why it's like that spirituality and, and I would say the healing mechanisms are so critical to these political conversations because ultimately we're dealing with human pain. So, and this is for me where it kind of goes direct to God again because if I think about who knows how to hold pain... Mm. or or you know even if what do i do with this level of pain right mm. like there, mm. there's no place that i could sit with that loss sit with that grief you know 
unless there's something greater beyond this moment in this life. Uh, And the question of who am I? Like, There's this verse that's been so important to me as I left Christianity and opened the gates to Jewishness. Uh, It's in the Torah, like, who am I, O Lord God? Mm -hmm. And what is my house that you have brought me thus far? And King David says it, right? Like, oh shit, I really fucked up here. And somehow Hashem has brought me to this moment. And this verse has stayed with me all my life, all my life. I loved it. It's like the thing I utter when I am in despair or when I'm in joy. And turns out Mike Pence used it in a speech. And finding that out, I was so betrayed. I was like, what? Yeah, it's so hurtful. I was so hurtful. I was so hurt. Well, it makes sense. I'm like, right. Yeah, American yeah. Christian nationalism, of course Mike Pence would pull a verse. But that this thing that has been intensely spiritually meaningful for me in my liberation away from U.S. imperialism mm-hmm. is also being used to uphold U.S. imperialism. Right. And so in this, in this vulnerability of belonging, I think we need to belong how do, what do we belong to? Who do we belong to if we don't belong to nation states? Yeah. And how do we weaponize our unbelonging? Mm. Where are the moments in which we aren't belonging? Where we'll never belong? Where that is a political strategy. Yeah. And, and growing that comfort with multiplicity, right? That I'm not just this one thing. I'm right. not a singular being. I'm actually multiple in all moments, right? Like, it's not like I'm Jewish first and then I'm Arab and or Arab first and then I'm Jewish. Right, right, right. Together in the same moment, the same. The, all these things. And you know how we were speaking also about, like, Jewish identity, trans identity. It's like, they're just one in the They're same. just one. Actually, they're one. And I am using these labels and these words uh, politically, right? Like, uh, I think about um, all the ways in which lesbian was a political call. Hmm. Of like, I am a lesbian, and that is a political orientation. Arab Jew, political orientation. Trans Jew, political orientation. Um, Texan, American. Like, all of these are, are, we're talking about power. And the thing about power is it's also always moving, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. which is where it gets messy. Um, But I think community is how I get clear over and over again. Conversations like this. Whoa, where can I practice thinking something through? Yeah. Help me figure it out. Right. So then we just don't just spiral and die from the inside, but that actually there's a sharedness here. There's a, I think about the importance of collective energy and it's just, none of us are dealing with any of the, especially these global political problems. They're they're not like singular issues. Exactly. It's like, there's no one individual who can come and solve it all for it. It's a collective reality that we, we need to kind of turn to. And, you know, I think that allowing that for that to be a messy, there's no way that's not a messy process. But this is where I go to song, right? Like, Mm -hmm. uh, I lead a lot of song at at large protest. And when you sing in a group, your heartbeats actually syncopate. Mm. They sync up, right? So we're actually creating a collective heart, which is the opposite of what capitalism, colonialism, 
imperialism want us to do. Yeah. And that collective heart can hold something much bigger than the individual heart. Yes. And mm-hmm. you've get 2000 people singing something together. I mean, suddenly the energy of what it is you're building, the world you are creating is totally different. And everyone wants to join. Yeah. And if, there's a belonging. There's there. a belonging in that heart that isn't that ends after the song is over. Like it, it doesn't need to be permanent. But there is a is something that's being created collectively, and we are, so rarely have spaces to do that together. Yeah. And I think this is a moment for me in in my life where the spiritual and political have come together, and my evangelical past, and which you know all I wanted to do was be in front of the people singing a song about Jesus. And now we're just singing a song about uh, how we're getting free and going to end all the prisons. Like, <laughs> turns out Jesus Which was, was that the whole time. Yeah. Like, I just was fooled. <laughs> right. right, and it's like coming home, but in this like totally unexpected in a totally way. unexpected way. Yeah. And it's a really holy moment for me in which I steer the boat. Like, mm. we're moving. The wind is moving through us. I yeah. steal the ship. Like, boom, this is the song we're singing. And, I, like, spirit moves through. And and poetry at 4 a.m. with the dead is a similar practice. Mm. After I led song in Boston, um, there were, like, thousands of folks at a protest. I was wiped afterwards. I just was out. And friends came over and fed me soup. And there was just this like, oh, whoa, this work, actually, this is work. Mm -hmm. This is spiritual muscle. I'm building it. I need to protect myself. How do I not take on the collective heart? Because that will kill me. Yeah. How do I let the collective heart be in its own space outside of my body? Mm -mm. And, And that we're all taking turns making space for this collective heart. Yes, yes. We're all holding our piece of the web. Piece of Hadar's web. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, Yeah, one thing I just wanted to ask also as we're kind of wrapping up, um, just around, you know, something I've personally been thinking about is also political landscapes Mm. and how political realities are different depending on the landscape we're in. Totally. And, you know, you're now living in Berlin, we're recording this in Berlin. <laughs> I'm just like so struck by like, okay, from coming from Texas, going to Jerusalem, coming to Berlin, especially around all these questions. I mean, also with Jewish identity, how totally. different that is in all these places. Like, what is it like being in Berlin now and, 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 and having all these questions, mm. writing all your poetry in, in Germany? Hmm. <laughs> mm. It's not like one thing. Uh, It's always changing. Um, In Texas, I knew no Jews. In Jerusalem, there were too many Jews. (laughs) In Berlin, oh, it's so heartbreaking. Um, I feel that I'm really learning. I'm in a rapid uh, evolution around it. And, And discernment. The piece about discernment mm-hmm. is key mm. because I walk into shul. There are very few shuls here, but I walk into shul in my neighborhood and 
Um, most of the space is full of Germans who are not Jewish, but who want to be in Jewish spaces very much. There's a lot of needing to take on a victim mm. identity. And it is really confusing because I walk into a shul, which is where I want to be heart open, spiritually open. And I realize, whoa, actually there's a lot going on in this space. Yeah. And, and what parts of me can I bring here? And, uh, who can I trust? Yeah. And, um, who shares my somatic experience? Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of grief and a lot of also joy. Yeah. Um, I think something I really love about Germany is how much every Jew counts. Mm. Um, I could become obsessed with grief of the ways in which Jewish life here is no more. It's not. There were a ton of Jews here. Now they're all gone for the most part. And their ways of being together are gone. Um, but because of that, the Jews that are here now, like we, every one of us really counts. Yeah. And I feel it uh, and know it. I feel it around my Shabbat table. Um, and I feel really grateful to be in diasporic community here, um, to share diaspora and grief and vision and hope with so many people from Iraq, from Syria, from Switzerland. There's a sense of shared diaspora and conversations are possible in diaspora and community is possible in diaspora and healing is possible in diaspora in different ways. And I think that's what I'm learning here in my Jewishness. Yeah. And there's also this, in some ways, this sense of return, right? It's like after everything is lost Mm. and then you return and it's still lost, but you're there. (laughs) Yeah. Well, this is a question, right? How to care for a place when you can't go back and We can't go back. We can't go back to those times. Um, And I think, what is the grief work I need to do in my body so that my eyes can be open to the bright, beautiful brilliance of what's possible? Mm. Amen. I love that. Um, Well, are there any last things that we haven't touched on that you would like Mm. to share with our listeners? Mm. I love you. (laughs) This is so fun and new. Um, Yeah, it's like, what does it look like to visualize community conversations? Yeah, in some ways it feels like every kind of conversation we have and also different. Um, Yeah, I mean, I actually was going to ask you, maybe to close... What is it like being part of Hadar's web for people who are not part of it? <laughs> oh, something I love about being in Hadar's web, which is the same thing about, you know, when we're in relationship with each other is that we don't, we don't always have the depth and drop in available to us at the times in which we always want it. Mm. Um, but when it does happen, it's magic. Like, okay, you're in Berlin. I'm in Berlin. Let's do this. Yeah. Um, I love I love dropping in. Me too. And I love the ways we give our webs to each other. Mm. Yeah. And I love this image of the web of just that network, create that multiplicity and that continuous evolving, expanding. 
I mean, this is queer family to me. This mm-hmm. is the the world making strategy I have from queerness, which is okay. The family structure, as it is imagined by the state, doesn't work. It upholds the state. Yeah. So let's abolish that. What else is possible? And it's the web. Hmm. Yes. What is what else is possible? The web. <laughs> I love you. I'm so excited for this podcast for you. Whoa. Thank you. <laughs> excited to Thank meet you. the other web makers across time <laughs> and space. Yeah, and slowly we're gonna create a whole world wide web that's gonna be very different than the technological <laughs> World Wide Web. Mm. Um, but thank you so much, Emmett, for sharing this space with me and for sharing of your heart, of your being, and um, yeah, being so broad, vulnerable, and authentic in this conversation with me. Mm. Thanks for having me, Hedda. Love you. Love you too. If you would like to stay in touch with Emmett, you can follow them on Instagram at Baruch Dayan Emmett for Twitter and Instagram, and for their website, EmmettIzel.com. Thank you.